Today we're going to talk about performance, power-ups, and finding your game dev identity. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the uh, 10th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. It's your host, Zachavelli. Hopefully this is pleasantly surprised. You are, that is, that this episode's come on a little bit early. I'll actually be on vacation this week, so I wanted to make sure I got this episode out before I left so that we didn't miss one. But anyways, if you'd uh, like to talk to me about Game Dev or... Just generally keep up with with what's going on with me. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. That's at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. And uh, I would invite you to join our Discord. The link is in the notes. Um, yeah, we're starting to get a handful of people in there and talking about uh, game dev. That's where we do the idea jam. That's where we um, talk about any progress we've been making. And yeah, it's been really cool to kind of interact with the community. So let's uh, take it over to the game idea jam then. So last week's uh, episode was all about um, polishing, and so to go along with this, uh, I kind of had, this is kind of a more weird idea jam, but uh, basically you had to design a game that you could make in 24 hours, and I wanted to put a big emphasis on how much thought and planning you put into it so that you could have a game with a small scope that is not very many features, but have them super well polished. Um, because the idea was we were going to take this game to market, so you wanted as few bugs, as few problems as possible. And the winner this week, uh, I think this makes him a four-time champion <laughs> of the uh, game idea jam, but it's Froglegs34. Um, he says on Discord, I'm no game dev, but I think I've got an idea. So to keep the game simple, I think I would go with limited graphics, maybe text-based. I would go with a linear story game. That way I can choose if I want to go back and add more to the game. I think out of the 24 hours I would spend 6 to 8 hours polishing the core mechanics. With such limited time, I would not really focus on finding the harder to find bugs, instead just making sure it's playable. This was my best attempt at a game idea jam for episode 9, bit harder this week because my limited experience of game development. And that's fine. Uh, the whole point of the game Idea Jam is to develop our skills as game developers, and um, I'm going to have more about that a little bit later. But yeah, I think this was a good idea. It's a reasonably planned game for 24 hours. Um, I think foregoing graphics and going tech space is a good idea. Um, I think it can be a trap to think that um, not having to do graphics, if you're going to do a linear story a game, makes it shorter, because if you think about it, linear sort of text-based story games in terms of making content can actually be some of the most like intensive games to make because let's just say the first decision in the game is a yes or no decision. Then you split a tree right there, right? You have like sort of a dialogue tree or an event tree. So now after that, let's say you said yes, and then there's another yes, no. And for the no decision, there's another choice that's another yes, no. So now you have four sort of branches of the tree and after you do that it's going to double to eight then you got 16 32 
and so on and so forth. I think if you wrote a really tight system, this is where like a lot of your work would go into where it handles the sort of the dialogue tree, then you could really plan it out so that um, you could have this dialogue tree flow nicely, feel like the player's decisions matter, but also not have your tree expand so far and so wide with so many decisions that you would run out of time. And so weirdly, I bet a lot of your game development time wouldn't even happen on the programming or within the engine. You'd just be, how I would do it, I'd get a whiteboard out or just a piece of paper and draw out the dialogue tree. So yeah, I think this really shows how much of the game development is actually done before you even start up the game engine. Planning out how your game is going to go and um, even like drawing up what your UI is going to look like can be super useful and I would recommend anyone who's making a game especially if you're on a tight schedule just draw these things up on a piece of paper or in Microsoft Paint or whatever I think that really really helps getting your idea um, like crystallizing your idea from your head onto something so that you have like a development path to follow so thanks again to froglegs 34 for submitting his uh, game idea jam I think I'm going to rebrand or change up the idea jam a little bit because what I've realized is that it basically just focuses on game design principles because that's what I am. I'm, I mean, that's my strongest skill is game design, and we're going to talk about figuring out who you are as a dev later in this episode. But what is not fair right now about the idea jam is that if you're an artist or a uh, maybe a music composer or something like that, you can't really contribute to the Idea Jam every week with your best skill. And maybe that's good in some cases because you're sort of training up your other skill, but I don't think we should just always be training up the game design skill, even though it's, you know, it's important. But ideally, I'd like to have, you know, be like a Swiss Army knife and have people training and learning from all different kinds of um, developers. So I'm going to rebrand this segment to the Game Dev Challenge. And maybe I'll find something. I'll probably rebrand the name a bunch of times. We're only 10 episodes in, so I'm still figuring things out. But So for the Game Dev Challenge, I think I'm going to change up the sort of skill that we're training every week. Um, we'll still have a theme, still have a prompt. But, you know, one week might be game design, the next week might be, I might even have you guys make some music or something. And I would encourage everyone to um, participate, even if you've never made music before. It's just like um, taking your first step towards doing something. And yeah, I don't think anyone, it's not like someone's going to super critique the first song you've ever made, right? Because we'll all have the context. And this will give... This will give people who are maybe, maybe they write video game music, this will give them a chance to shine. Um, it'll give artists a chance to shine. It'll give game designers a chance to shine. I'll probably try and do a programming challenge. Um, I know we've got a lot of programmers, a lot of strong programmers in the Discord right now, so I think that would be really cool. So yeah, for this uh, next week, we're going to keep it simple. This is something that everyone can do. You can get free tools on the internet. But I would like everyone to give a shot at making a character sprite. So a sprite is just a 2D art asset. You can make it in sort of the pixel art form, or if you turn up the resolution, you could make it, you know, something a little bit more complex. 
Um, if you don't have art tools, I would recommend there's a website called Piskel, P-I-S-K-E-L. Just type that into Google, and that's free uh, sprite creation tools. Works really good. You can export in all sorts of useful formats and yeah, I'd really like to see what art you come up with. Even if you're not an artist, if you're a programmer or a musician or you are an artist, um, this is your time to shine. And yeah, I realize that, um, you know, sprites might not be the best thing to convey in an audio <laughs> format, but I still think it's useful to the community. And that's what I'm trying to grow is a community that um, is improving their skills. I want to help people who are beginners get to the intermediate level and I want to help the intermediate people get to the next level. So yeah, that's my idea. Uh, who, lo- who knows how long it'll go for. Maybe we'll go right back to the idea jam. Um, like I said, I'm still figuring things out, but I think that would be cool. And we're going to do all this on Discord. So go to Pisco if you don't already have art tools that you like. Make a character sprite um, and then post it onto Discord under the game dev challenge panel. And yeah, we'll talk about them there. So with that, let's go over to the body of the episode. So this week's going to be a quick tips episode um, because I'm about to go off on vacation, but don't worry, I didn't skimp out on the sort of usefulness of this episode. I think there's some good nuggets in here. So the first thing I want to talk about is performance. And if you remember from the polishing episode, performance is one of those things that happens in the polish step. It's basically how well your app runs on user's machine and I just mean app because I'm used to mobile dev but it can it's basically how well your game runs on a machine poorly performing games uh, won't run well even on nice rigs um, if you just have poor programming practice or you're just unnecessarily using up memory um, your game's just not going to run well on nice rigs and maybe not even run at all for like more kind of middle of the pack rigs and the low end stuff And poor performance, you want to avoid it because it hurts the size of the audience um, that you can reach, and also it hurts uh, the player experience. The size of the audience obviously is important because you want to reach as many people as possible, um, and you don't want them to be limited by what kind of machine they can afford. You want to make a video game that even, you know, people with tighter budgets can enjoy. And the player experience, I mean, that's just, we've all played games that are kind of rough. It's weird because it's like one of those things that you don't really appreciate when it's going well. You know, like when a game's buttery smooth, in this day and age, we just kind of expect that. But when a game is really choppy, you can feel it like almost immediately. And performance, I think, affects genres differently. You really got to consider performance in games like shooters, uh, games that focus on movement, especially VR. If you're making a VR game with poor performance, you can literally make people sick just because they have like really choppy screens attached to their eyes. But on the other hand, if you're making like a strategy game or like a turn-based game, you still obviously want to have the best performances possible, but it's probably not terrible if you don't have 60 FPS on your turn-based strategy game. I should probably describe what FPS is. FPS is, it stands for frames per second, and it's a measure of how many frames in a second the computer can draw. So with high frames per second, it draws them so fast that your eyes don't even notice the in-between parts. Um, But with lower frames per second, that's when it starts feeling choppy, and that's how people get like motion sickness, because it feels like you're kind of like jerking around and it just doesn't really give a smooth feeling. 
So remember, if your game relies on movement, if movement's a key element, then performance is going to be pretty paramount to your game's success. And you're going to want to make sure that you spend a lot of your polishing time on performance. So I want to talk about some ways that we can increase the performance of our game. And there's certainly a lot better people than me to talk about performance. Um, it can get really deep into the efficiencies of executing code in certain ways. But I'm going to speak about it in terms of a, you know, making your video game and the kind of uh, quick things that you can look at to improve your performance. So the first key idea we want to talk about is that every line of code has a cost, and the cost is the time it takes to execute. And this time that it takes can really build up quick, especially on repeated calculations. Examples of repeated calculations are things like um, draw calls, which are just the signal to draw something on the screen. Um, a large amount of physics, if you have a lot of physics interactions, that can really build up fast. Pathfinding for AI characters, just the calculations they have to make to figure out where to go. And then another big one is light bounces. If you're working with real-time lighting um, and you have really reflective materials, a, a lot of engines will try and limit the amount of bounces that happen. But if you don't keep that in check, um, if you have something like a mirror or water, that can really up those amount of draw calls. Because if you think about it, in a reflection, you're going to be drawing things twice or at least lighting things twice. So those are examples of repeated calculations that if you're getting poor performance, it's probably caused by something like one of those things. And so you can eliminate a lot of um, hassle with these if you think about it up front. So if your game, for instance, is has a lot of water and you're going for like a realistic looking game with reflections and good lighting, make sure you consider... Um, at least checking, you know, how are we lighting the scene? Are there examples where maybe we don't need to reflect everything in the water? If you have a game with physics, um, do you need to simulate the physics of everything, or are there objects that can remain static, like buildings? Um, if you don't have destructible buildings in your game, then it might be nice just to make those like a solid block and really limit the amount of physics that is considered. Because, you know, you could simulate every brick, which would make a really sweet destruction system, but you got to kind of, you know, balance these things. And so not only when you plan, can you figure out like, okay, what things do I really need? What things don't I need? But you could figure out some of these things ahead of time. So lighting, for instance, there's this idea of baking lighting, which all that really means is um, for things that aren't going to move, the light is always going to hit them the same way. Let's talk about, again, a building in its shadow. If you don't have real time like a day-night cycle. If the sun's in the same spot for the whole level, then the shadow's always going to be in the same spot. So there's no need to constantly calculate where the light is that's casting the shadow. You can just do that up front. And so this is where we get to the idea of loading screens for map generation, basically. This is why a lot of games have loading screens. It's to hide all of these calculations so that we do a bunch of really hard stuff up front, but after it's done, then you have all that stuff already figured out and the computer doesn't have to think about it while the game's running and so you get uh, a better FPS. So that's how loading screens can be um, really helpful. Just remember, when you're making a game, try to think about stuff that doesn't need to be calculated while the game's running and then think about if you can do that all in a loading screen prior to when the game starts. So for real-time calculations, 
This would be like uh, draw calls, for instance, figuring out what the player sees on the screen. You're going to want to employ something called culling. So culling is the idea of not drawing things the player can't see. And there's two methods mostly that I use to this. I'm sure there's other ideas and ways to do it, but here's how I do it. And fiddling with the settings in Unity, you can do this pretty simply. Um, I'm not sure how it works for other engines, but in Unity, you can do this pretty simply. I mean, it's like one, maybe 15 minute tutorial and you'll know everything you need to know. Um, so there's two things you want to look to do. The first is called occlusion calling, which is um, if you have, let's say, a piece of paper in front of your face and you can't see through it, everything behind the paper, there's no need to draw it. So uh, if there's something blocking your player's view from other things behind it, then you just don't draw those things behind it. You basically turn them off. They don't simulate physics. They don't simulate being drawn. There's no lighting hitting them. And so that can save you a lot of those lines of code that cost you time to run. Secondly, there's something called frustrum calling. Now, a frustrum, I think it's a, what is a frustrum? It's like a cone shape almost. I think that's right. I think it's like a cone with the top chopped off and maybe it only has four sides instead of circular. Anyways, just think of it like what your player can see kind of within their peripheral vision. And so the things that are... Um, sort of left and right and above and below their peripheral vision or behind them, we don't draw those things. And we only draw them when they swing their head around and those things fill that part of the screen. So yeah, you want to use these culling techniques to turn things off that the player can't see so that you're saving those precious seconds that, well in this case it's milliseconds, that the computer needs to run each line of code. So now let's switch up to the second topic of the Quick Tips episode, um, power-ups. So power-ups are a game mechanic where the player is temporarily given an advantage. It's not to be confused with a progression item, which is a permanent upgrade. A power-up just kind of helps them uh, momentarily. If you go back and listen to the difficulty episode, you'll remember that a good way to make your game interesting is to fluctuate the difficulty, and power-ups are a really good way of kind of doing this a little bit organically. They can help a player get out of a tough situation, or if they're already in a good situation and they have a power-up, it kind of plays to the uh, giving the player a taste of like a power fantasy, which it's fun in video games to be powerful. But if you're powerful for too long, then it doesn't become fun anymore. So that's why this has to be like a temporary upgrade. So in multiplayer games, power-ups can be useful too. Um, because they're great for making sure that one player doesn't get too far ahead of the other players, or it can aid them in getting further ahead. It kind of depends on how you balance it. So in Mario Kart, for instance, a good example is the blue shell. The blue shell kind of homes in on whoever's in first place and blows them up and gives everyone a chance to catch up or even pass them. And the way the drops work is that the blue shell has a better chance of dropping to people who are further behind. Same as uh, the bullet bill, which makes you go really fast and you're invincible. You can crash in anything and you'll keep going. Um, you have a better chance of getting that when you're in last place, for instance. So that's a good example of how you can balance power-ups to help your players catch back up to the pack in multiplayer games. Also, let's talk about the reverse situation where some games, it's like part of the mechanics that the best player starts to snowball and get better and better and better. Um, the classic game Quake, which is admittedly a little before my time, I didn't play it that much, but 
from what I understand, Quake multiplayer was all about getting the power weapons. For instance, like a rocket launcher. The really, really good players know where the rocket launcher is going to spawn, what time. They're there when it spawns. They get it. They go on a kill spree. And they're constantly calculating in their head when the next power weapon is going to spawn and where it's going to be. And that almost has become a mechanic within the game where the other players are trying to keep the best player from getting the power weapons consistently. Because if the best player chains those power weapons together, one after the other after the other, they start to snowball and just get to the point where their lead is almost insurmountable. Which I guess you consider, could consider that it's that idea is kind of a older game design idea, but I think it's still an interesting idea. Um, it's kind of cool to like try and interrupt someone in the middle of a hot streak, and if you're the person on the hot streak, it's kind of cool to see if you can keep it going. Admittedly, it does end up in the games where if you fall behind, it feels like you almost never had a chance, but some people, especially in the hardcore competitive community, get like a kick out of that, and I'll admit that it's it's fun to like go on a power trip like that, so... Yeah, I think both examples, both in Mario Kart and Quake, are good um, examples of how to use power-ups to balance multiplayer games, and you could probably take those same principles and move them over to single-player games. So the last point of this Quick Tips episode is one that I think is pretty important, and it's finding your identity as a game dev. Chances are you have a thing, right? Like, we all have things that we're good at. And when you come into game dev, you think of yourself as that thing, right? You're either an artist, you're a programmer, you're a game designer, you're a musician. And the purpose of this show is to help people kind of develop and round out all of those skills um, so that maybe they are a game designer, but they can also program. They've got a little bit of art skill and they're pretty well-rounded as a developer. When it comes to game dev, I think it's better to be a Swiss army knife. The best thing about this art form is that it's got everything. In order to write a, or make a complete game, you're going to have to write a story, you're going to have to make the art, design engaging gameplay, interesting levels, you're going to have to frame it nicely from like a photography or movie director standpoint, you're going to have to program it beautifully so that it works. We've also got the whole hidden element of interaction and... That's kind of unique to the video game art form because, you know, movies happen to you. Um, If you go look at a painting, it kind of happens to you. But with video games, you step into the painting, you step into the movie, and, like, your decisions change the art. So that in itself is unique to any other um, art form. And I think this kind of idea can be really well displayed. (laughs) Some people are going to laugh at this. It can be really well displayed in the Call of Duty campaigns. Now, I know what you're thinking. Call of Duty is not exactly known for its single-player campaigns, but I think it's going to show the kind of extremes of what I mean and be a good example to study. So Call of Duty, the reason why I think it shows um, sort of the unique interaction aspect of, of the video game art form is that its campaigns are basically set up like movies, right? Um, you kind of just go through pretty linear levels. Um, it's like you're just watching an action movie, right? And yeah, you can shoot some people, but the way that you shoot people doesn't matter that much, I guess. You're going to get from one level to the end. And yeah, I guess it's just, it's pretty linear. But I think it does have some good examples. One that is a really bad example of how to execute on our 
unique art form about interaction and one that I think is really good. So let's start with the bad first. We all know the meme, press F to pay respects. This is from a Call of Duty game where you go to like a soldier's funeral and they literally, a prompt comes up on the screen and says, press F to pay respects. Now I can see what they were kind of going for here, right? It's supposed to be like a somber event. And I always talk about make your players feel something, right? We're trying to evoke a feeling with video games. Not always just fun, but other compelling feelings. And respect, especially when it comes to military, especially for an American audience, I can see what they were going for. But it's just, it's kind of corny, you know? (laughs) And like sometimes art is corny. That's just the way it goes. But uh, yeah, I think forcing the player to press F to pay respects, I don't know, it just didn't really execute well on how cool interacting with the art in video games can be. Now, a good example in the Call of Duty franchise, um, in the most recent Call of Duty, there's a level where you do like a night vision raid on a house. I think it's in the Middle East somewhere, but you're basically clearing out this house and you have to determine whether or not the people in the house are dangerous to you or not. Sometimes um, they do a really good job on the animations and sort of the atmosphere of it being nighttime and the night vision. Sometimes it looks like someone's going to pull a gun on you when really they're just pulling, I don't know, like a radio or something. And sometimes, you know, people who are real inconspicuous do pull a gun on you. And so it kind of ups that level of stress. And I don't know, I just thought it was super interesting because you're kind of like making the player go through probably in real life like one of the most stressful situations you could possibly do as a soldier and there's a particular moment where a woman it looks like she's rushing to get something but you realize she's rushing to pick up a baby but it's like the most convincing animation that she's like about to go and pick up a gun and if you shoot her the level doesn't end or anything there's actually one of your like teammates i guess goes and picks up the crying baby puts him back in the crib And it's like incredibly somber. And for me, that's a much better way of like evoking that somber feeling of war. And honestly, makes me feel respect for the people that have to do that job. So that's a really good example of like, you could have someone press a button, (laughs) press F to pay their respects. Or you could have them experience like the most stressful part or probably one of the most stressful parts of being a soldier And then by going through a simulated experience of that, I mean, you can reflect to yourself and be like, man, if I really had to do that in real life, that would be crazy. And people actually do do this in real life. People do have to actually experience and go through this very stressful situation. And I think anyone who goes through that, the game version automatically gains respect for people who have to do that in real life. And so that is a really good example of when I say interaction is unique to video games as an art form. Like, yeah, you can watch an action movie about people clearing a house in Afghanistan, but to actually experience it and have you being the one making the calls, making the shots, it's just unique to video games. And this is classically me going on a tangent about (laughs) something that's not even related to the point or sort of tangentially related to the point I was trying to make. But you guys know how I love going on about stories and awesome examples in video games. And I think that is a good example of the uniqueness to the art form that we like making. So I'm going to segue it back to the original point and pretend like I didn't just go on a 
10 minute rant. Um, how do we know how to be the latter version where we're making the player feel something through gameplay and not just having them press a button and saying, you should feel this feeling. You know, it's like asking, how do you make good art versus bad art? And the truth is, I don't think anyone can really answer that with 100% accuracy. Um, If they could, there would never be bad art. But here's how I like to think about it. And I'm not saying everything I've ever made is great. In fact, I think I'm still in the learning phase. Um, And I haven't really become great yet. But here's the framework that I like to think about it in. The key to being good is knowing your identity as a game developer. Figure out what it is that you're good at. What it is that skill is maybe not unique to you, but it's something that you're better at than most people. Um, It's your thing, right? We talked about we all have a thing. We all approach game dev from sort of our thing's point of view. So if you're a musician, it's music. If you're an artist, it's art. And I'm not saying you have to like pinhole yourself into one of these categories, but I think the games you want to make should double down on your best skill. Now, remember, we want to be Swiss Army Knives and be good enough to do everything else. But you don't want to water down your games by trying to be everything. You want to focus on what it is that you're good at. And the truth is, it takes a really long time to be rounded out and uh, good enough at everything to make a complete game. And that's where team members can kind of help cover your weaknesses. I always talk about game dev from the frame of mind that I guess you're going to be doing everything yourself. And that's just because um, at the moment, that's just how I like making games right now, just because I like like controlling every aspect. I like to learn new things and yeah, like figuring out all the different stuff and how it all fits together is just what I like about game dev. But for a lot of people, working with team members is going to be a great way to cover these things that maybe you're not so great at. And I think if everyone approaches it from the framework that you want to be a Swiss Army Knife, then I think a, tw- a team of Swiss Army Knives with people who are maybe experts in some things, but they can do everything, I think that is a very powerful team. As opposed to a team of people who only are experts in one thing, I think it makes it really hard to see how everything's going to gel together. But if you know a little bit about each process, then you know how your expertise fits into the bigger picture. And honestly, being a Swiss Army knife can lead to a real job uh, in the industry because I think most game studios are looking for people who can do a little bit of everything, especially at the entry level. So if your dream is to jump into a video game company, then being a Swiss Army Knife, I think, is really going to help you with opportunities. But the other benefit of being a Swiss Army Knife is that it allows you to make games. You don't have to wait for anyone else. You know how to do all of it. and You can make games and practice a lot faster. I think the best thing for you to develop as a game developer, um, develop in skill, that is, is to make as many games as you possibly can. And if you know all the steps, then there's no one else holding you back. Not that they would hold you back, but it's you don't have to rely on other people's time. So yeah, I guess to sum up everything I just said, um, I think the goal for me, and I'm happy to discuss this on the Discord if you think the goal is different for you, but the goal for me is to try and become a Swiss Army Knife with 
one or maybe two expertise. So for me personally, I'm a game designer. I've been designing games since I was like five. I would design games with Legos. I would design games with imagination, playing on the kids with kids on the playground. I got into modding in my teens and then full-on game development. And this whole time, I was just constantly thinking about new game ideas. And so, yeah, you just got to find the thing that you're best at and then develop skills around that so that you can make a game. And remember that that's what's so awesome about game dev is that it includes everyone. Every art form you can think of can contribute. And not only does it got a little flavor of every other art form, it's got something totally unique to itself, which is interaction. And yeah, I could talk about it all day. Um, I'm sure I feel like I've kind of rambled on about this point for long. So I'm going to move on to the uh, end segment of the show. So the last thing I want to do here is just kind of reflect on the show. This is the 10th episode. Um, It's been awesome. To be honest, after the first three episodes, I wasn't really sure how well it was going, um, if I wanted to keep doing it. I think I started out of the gate like way too fast, like I was going to have an episode every week, and it just wasn't working out with me also trying to develop games full-time and uh, trying to transitioning from my job, and then COVID happened and all that. So yeah, all things considered, even though we had a bumpy start, and I'm sure we're going to keep having bumpy things happen like rebranding the game idea jam um i might change up the format of the show but yeah so far it's been awesome i love talking about game dev um i really like interacting with the people on the discord even a small handful of us it's been it's been really really cool it's just what i love to do so thank you so much for listening um hopefully You've gotten some amount of information on these first episodes that's helped you move along the uh, path of game dev and develop your skills a little bit. And I think there will be a lot of episodes to come and a lot more information for all of us to learn together. And yeah, I'm having a great time uh, doing it, so we're not ending uh, anytime soon. So speaking about discussing game dev, uh, be sure to check the show notes for the Discord link. It's an open invite. To everyone, come talk about video games, come talk about making video games, the kind of tools you like to use, the art forms you like. we got a show and tell section if you want to show off some stuff. This is where we're going to do the game dev challenge. Um, Remember that this um, upcoming game dev challenge is about making a character sprite. It's going to be really cool to see everyone's sprites. If you don't have art tools, you can go on to... The internet, uh, the website is piskel.com, and that'll have everything you need to make a character sprite, and I'm really excited to see everyone's. Even if you're not an artist, take a shot at it. I'm certainly not great, but uh, yeah, I think it'll be fun seeing the spectrum of all the way from people who are like just learning 2D art all the way up to people who have been practicing for years. Remember, um, you can reach out to me anytime on Twitter or Instagram. Um, that's at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. As you can tell, I really like talking about game dev, so I'll talk to you about your projects, big or small. Um, send me a demo, I'll play them. And yeah, I'd always love to have some more uh, interaction with other people who are interested in game dev. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Um, I've been Zaccavelli. It's dangerous to go alone. Take this, and I'll see you guys next time.